and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. This week in politics, it's all about Barnaby Joyce, of course. So I dialed up Miranda Devine, columnist for the Daily Telegraph and the Herald Sun, who's been writing quite insightfully on that matter. Um, but I interviewed Miranda before Barnaby stood down, took leave, so that he wouldn't be actually acting Prime Minister next week. So Miranda didn't know about that at the time, but I was pretty sure she would still think that Barnaby will survive. Also, Robert Gottliebson, columnist for The Australian and my old friend of 30 or 40, possibly 40 years, talks me through how the markets are going at the moment. Melinda Salento, the Chief Executive of the Committee for Economic Development of Australia and one of the panellists on our upcoming event, Constant Investor Live, discusses her thoughts on the economy at the moment and what we can expect in 2018. And finally, Daniel Hines, the Senior Commodity Strategist at ANZ Research, shares his thoughts on the commodity market at the moment. Okay, let's dig into the Barnaby Joyce affair with the person who I think is probably the best informed journalist on the subject. It's Miranda Devine, columnist with the Daily Telegraph. Well, Miranda, um, you wrote a terrific column on Barnaby Joyce uh, last week. Um, and, you you know, you seem to be pretty negative about him, uh, although both sy- uh, sympathetic at the same time and suggesting that he's probably got to go. I'm not sure you said that exactly. But this week you were, uh, seem to be more defending him. Where, where do you stand, actually? Do you think that he won't, will last or won't last? I, look, I think he'll last. He's, he's managed to survive um, that t- tiny insurgency, which was really, I mean, they couldn't even get half a quorum. They needed 11... Um, MPs to knock him off as leader, and I think they got five, maybe six. So, um, you know, it was it was really uh, most people in the National Party support Barnaby Joyce as leader because, frankly, there is no one to match him. You know, he's been an incredible, as Tony Abbott said, retail politician, the best of his generation, and he's achieved an enormous amount for their National Party constituency. So. Um, Look, he's battered and bruised. He is certainly, uh, he's lost his authority, I think. He's, um, you know, he's on the ropes. And he's, you know, I wrote initially, I didn't say that he should go in in my initial column at all. It was just an expression of disappointment that I think um, most conservatives share. And that is that, you know, he was admirable and he is admirable no longer. In fact, a lot of people are saying that that means that this he can't in the end he can't last. That you know he may maybe survive this past week, but um, at the end of the day he'll have to go. So um, clearly, you don't think that. Well, look, personally, he's been a faithless husband. He's cheated on his wife, and he has foolishly, uh, you know, made this great error of having a sexual relationship with his staffer. Now, I've looked into the allegations that there was misuse of taxpayer money and so on. I've seen Vicky Campion, the staffer in question. I've seen her pay slip. Um, she, uh, she was moved to Matt Canavan's office in around April when Barnaby Joyce told us just the other day that he and his wife were trying to get their marriage back together again. There'd been, you know, an affair. He said they had been friends. And I know I spent some time with them uh, about a year ago. I had a drink with them in a bar in the city and, you know, they spent most of the time outside 
smoking way like you do when you're a smoker and con- consigned to the footpath. And, um, you know, it was obvious that they had a very easy camaraderie, but I did not detect at that stage any sexual frisson. Um, I could be wrong, and Barnaby's not the person that we all thought he was. But um, at some point before April last year, there was a romantic entanglement between the two of them. And then uh, Natalie Joyce, Barnaby's wife, um, you know, stepped in and, uh, you know, she went up to Barnaby, to Vicky in the streets of Tamworth and said to her, you know, tore strips off her, said to her words, negative, nasty things like you are called, a homewrecker. Called her a homewrecker. <laughs> called her a homewrecker in front of witnesses. Now, um, so obviously, you seem to be Joyce, you seem to be suggesting, Miranda, that the move into Matt Canavan's office uh, was a part, may have been a part of the attempt by Barnaby to patch things up with Natalie. Uh, of course, of course, it was because you cannot have a woman that you've slept with still working in your office, and I mean, as if a wife is going to tolerate that. So the temptation had to be removed from his office. So that was done. But it was done within the envelope of the, st- the, the staffing allocation that the entire nationals have. And that is they have 80 staffers. And if they want to have 70 of those staffers in that Canavan's office, they can do that. You know, it doesn't cost the taxpayer any extra money. Now, where there was um, a, a, an impost was that when... when um, Vicky Campion moved to Matt Canavan's office. She got a pay rise of about um, $4,500. That was about 3.5%. Now, she's not earning and wasn't earning anywhere near what's been, you know, the $191,000 that's been bandied about, even when you include overtime. She did get a little increase when she went to Matt Canavan's office, but she did interview for that job, and no one has suggested she didn't get it on merit. She is in the elite of staffers. She is as good as anyone I've ever dealt with and her reputation um, is absolutely blemish-free you know, blemish and she in terms of professionally. And she, uh, during the 2016 election, she ran rings around the, the, the you know, the Tony Windsor campaign. And, uh, you know, and that, that's part of the reason why Tony Windsor and his former chief of staff are so determined to dish dirt on Barnaby. And, uh, you know, much of it is just, I mean, it's disgusting, but also blatantly wrong. And so Vicky Campion, she got that job. She was only in there for, you know, a short time, matter of months, because, of course, then Matt Canavan also was caught up, as was Barnaby Joyce, as was uh, his deputy Fiona Nash in that citizenship drama. So all at that point, all the staffers from all those ministers who were caught up in the citizenship problem, they were all warehoused, sprinkled around other staffers. And Vicky Campion was just treated like any other staffer. That was when she moved to Damien Drum. And at that point, she took a pay cut, which was almost as much as the pay rise, the slight pay rise that she'd had when she moved to Matt Canavan's office. So I don't really think that there's a case to be made for any financial shenanigans. You were definitely suggesting in that uh, first column last week that uh, this is not uh, Barnaby's first affair. Um, you, I think you quoted Natalie as saying he's a, t- uh, or you, you said that he's a hard dog to keep on the porch, as Hillary said of Bill Clinton, uh, and that Natalie said something like um, he always comes back. So that 
it was a clear implication that uh, he's um, he's been on it. He's been doing this before. Well, look, yes, I don't have any uh, direct evidence of that. I, I'm I'm just reporting what I'm being told by um, people close to Natalie, and uh, and also I know that you know I know some some locals in New England. Um, a long time locals have known Barnaby for almost all his life, um, and they, uh, you know, their attitude is that. Um, He's been swimming outside the flags. That was the exact quote uh, for some time. Now, I don't know. You know, that could be just just the way he acts. I mean, he he's a he likes women. That's pretty obvious. You know, we had a photo on the front page of the Daily Telegraph um, days ago, and uh, it showed that uh, you know he was sneaking a, a peek at Vicky Campion's you know, legs in her very short skirt as she was sitting next to him. So, you know, I don't think that's a criminal offence. So maybe it's just that he um, talks and he loves women and he flirts with them. Um, that do you, do you think... Do you think has uh, that reputation. Do you, do you think he's, um, uh, I don't know, in love with Vicky Campion, that she is now his partner? Yeah, I do. Um, I know that she's in love with him. Um, I, look, I don't know whether... The fact of the pregnant, you know, it's their their personal business. But I, but whether or not if she hadn't become pregnant, he would have stayed with her. I don't know. He's been with his wife Natalie for twenty four years. She's very long suffering, and she also knows him very well. She knows that ups and downs are, you know, integral to his personality. Um, and you know, he, she, they met at university, and she's been his backup and his love for you know, more than a quarter of a century. So she very much wanted to keep the marriage together. And he did try in April uh, to do that, as he told us himself. And at some point after that, um, he, you know, he went back to Nikki Campion, as is proven by the fact that she's now pregnant with his child due in April, which means she must have become pregnant in about July. Up until your column this week, I was thinking that the Barnaby-Joyce matter was a rare unifying factor between the left and the right in Australia. Everybody uh, on both sides of uh, of the spectrum in Australia were calling for him to go and uh, expressing disgust and all that stuff. Uh, and now you appear to have uh, uh, felt uncomfortable <laughs> in, the, in the company that you were keeping and have um, distanced yourself from that idea. Yeah, look, I, I didn't really change anything. My, my initial column was not saying... In fact, I said in that column that he oughtn't lose his job over it, but that he should he should suffer, as he is suffering, um, terrible reputational damage, a loss of authority, and, you know, not being a figure of admiration anymore. I mean, that's permanent. His yeah. reputation is permanently damaged. And, you know, his brand was as a social conservative, and... Sleeping with your staffer, getting her pregnant and leaving your wife and four children is not part of that brand. So that's trashed forever. And, you know, maybe not forever. I mean, who knows? He may be able to resuscitate himself. But um, I, I just felt then, then, you know, after I'd written that column in the next few days, that the feeding frenzy, the pile-on, and particularly from the left seeing an opportunity to bring down a conservative politician, one of the few, if not the only one in Australia at the moment, who is actually effective and has an enormous, has enormous clout within the Turnbull government uh, and is an important ballast 
to Malcolm Turnbull, who leans to the left of the Liberal Party. And so to have the National Party there, their coalition partner, which you know normally doesn't actually have much heft in recent years, to have Barnaby Joyce have the kind of clout he has by virtue of you know, his personality and his popularity, but also the fact that in the 2016 election, it was the National Party who who actually saved the government because they won an extra seat over what they already had. And that was, you know, I have to say, through incredible campaigning by both Barnaby Joyce and Fiona Nash, they went above and beyond. They were on the road 24-7, um, you know, uh, and, and to the detriment of both marriages. And I'm joined now by my old mate, Bob Gottliebson, who was my mentor in the 70s, would you believe, taught me everything I know. And he'd been around the markets for 10 years before that. And that's when I was a kid. So um, uh, here's Bob Gottliebson, currently columnist at The Australian. So, uh, Bob, um, uh, when the correction was happening last week, everyone was saying it's going to keep going for a while and uh, hold on to your hats. But uh, the market's been doing okay this week. Do you think that uh, there's more to come? Well... I think what we've just experienced is a healthy correction at around 10 to 12 percent in the US. Um, uh, we could well have more corrections because understand why this market fell um, and Andy, why it's recovered too. We're moving to a different interest rate environment where interest rates are going to rise. Now, if you've got a whole lot of bets placed on the fact that interest rates are going to be low for an extended period, you've got to change those situations. And that's what we saw in that correction. But the fact is that in the US, uh, the reason interest rates are rising is that the economy is doing extremely well. Uh, profits are going to rise, so the analysts tell us, by 15 to 17%. Um, uh, and so uh, demand is increasing across a wide range of areas. And so we are going to see some more inflation. We are going to see more interest rate rises. And that will cause adjustments in asset prices and shares. But the underlying situation is a very strong US economy. So you seem to be saying that um, volatility will remain high. Is that kind of the bottom line? Yeah, because we're adjusting we're adjusting our asset values. We're adjusting our um, inflation expectations. And we're adjusting our interest rates. Uh, and that causes all sorts of different dynamics. If you're a bondholder, you're losing a lot of money. Oh, you're going to lose a bit more too. Um, so um, I, I think all investors have to understand that the very, very long period of it's about 20 or 30 years of constantly falling interest rates is over uh, globally. And, and it's not the central banks that are necessarily setting the interest rates. It's the bond market. And you know, we have a situation in the States where uh, there are huge amounts of money to be raised in bonds in the next uh, 12 or 18 months, uh, huge, very big deficits. Um, and those deficits are, deficits are piled upon quite a strong U.S. economy. So uh, inevitably, um, it's going to be a very different time and profits will rise. Um, some shares will rise, some shares will fall in that environment. But overall, um, as you say, we'll get volatility uh, and we'll get change. But that underlying rise in U.S. profits um, will maintain the market. We, we, we won't cause a crash. 
what causes a real crash is if the thing falls off the rail somewhere. You know, we might have a war, we might have a, a, a big rise in protectionism, or some other dramatic event takes place which changes the game. But, you know, that's very hard to predict. We know they're there, but overall, we're going to see a period of great US prosperity. And, and that spills its way across into Europe and into Japan and even to us. Um, uh, uh, our prosperity comes uh, via China and to some extent Japan as we export um, our minerals to them. Uh, we could be affected because protectionism rises in the US. But that's down the track, a very strong US economy. You mentioned that the uh, bond owners will lose money. Do you think that um, that applies to those who own uh, high-yielding stocks in Australia, which are often described as Australia's version of uh, bonds? Um, well, in Australia, you're talking about the, the four big banks, aren't you? Well, pretty much. And the, and the REITs, you know, that's sort of the, the income stocks, Telstra, the banks, as you say. The, um, yeah, that's right. Exactly right. Well, if those companies can't increase their earnings and, um, um, and, and just remain income stocks, then uh, as part of a global situation, yes, their prices will stagnate. It may fall because uh, people will get better returns from bonds. Um, remember, we're, we've been talking about the US. Um, our situation isn't as strong here. We have a very high debt problem with our housing and things like that. But look, um, uh, we'll be part of a higher interest rate environment. And yes, bank shares will not perform well unless the profits perform as well. Uh, and that's the key to the US, of course. The profits are going up. You've, uh, you've been around the markets a long time, Bob. Um, are there any parallels uh, that you can see in the past for what we're seeing now? <laughs> now, I, I don't want to get you too scared. <laughs> but um, in, uh, politically, let's just take the political situation. The nearest I can see to a Trump, in Australia anyway, um, is when Whitlam came to power. Um, uh, and you remember that in the nine months before Whitlam got to power, a fellow called Billy McMahon was the Prime Minister, and there was a need to stimulate the economy. No question about that. And Whitlam announced what he was going to do, but then Billy put his own stimulus in. Whitlam came to power and stimulated again. Um, and, uh, and Whitlam didn't have people that initially that were that able to run governments, similar to Trump. So what we're seeing in the US is a, a, a strong US economy where a president has come in and he's stimulated it again. Um, and he, he has difficulty... I guess a big difference between Trump and Whitlam, I mean, that's interesting, the parallel, but big difference is that Whitlam cut tariffs by 25% and Trump's putting them up. Yes, yes. And I think that we need to understand globally that um, there is a move against globalisation in many, many countries. Uh, in America, you tend to blame Trump for it. I don't think that's necessarily right. I think the Democrats are about the same. Um, they might have different emphasis. Uh, you're seeing similar things in parts of Europe, and and we're going to need to live in a world where rampant globalisation is no longer popular. It's lost its popularity amongst vast areas of, of, of different democratic nation popularity uh, countries. So we will have to adjust to that. It, it hasn't happened here because we've been one of the great beneficiaries from this because we've exported our minerals to China, uh, and China then participated in the global um, globalisation, and we won too. So uh, along with China, 
But as it changes, we're going to have to be, more, be much cleverer. I'm joined now by Melinda Salento, who's the CEO of CEDA, the Committee for Economic Development of Australia, um, who's also an economist, and uh, she's also on our panel at the upcoming Constant Investor Live event in Melbourne on March the 13th. Here's Melinda Salento. Melinda, you've just put out the CEDA Economic and Political Outlook. What are the main things that came out of that for you? Uh, well, look, I think um, from an economic perspective, the main thing that came out for me is that um, things are really starting to look up in Australia uh, and around the world, which uh, I think is good news for all of us. Um, you're seeing synchronised growth starting to pick up uh, in in the rest of the world, and that's good news for Australia. And around Australia, it feels like it's, it's a similar story with uh, the states all lining up as well uh, and WA starting to look uh, like at least it's turned the corner. And I guess to some extent the market correction reinforced that because it was based on interest rates going up uh, and uh, interest rates are going up in response to the improving economy. Well, I think that's right, Alan. I think you know when you look at uh, the forecast for the global economy, uh, last year saw those forecasts start to be revised up uh, consistently, which is unusual. They had been nudged down consistently and now I think everyone's realised that most of the major economies in the world are are growing. Uh, Labor markets around the world are are looking better than they have for a long time uh, and people have started to realise that at some point that's going to result in higher interest rates and I guess the the question is, is when with wages and inflation still relatively benign. So what do you see as the key risks uh, for the Australian economy? I think um, if you look at all the leading indicators, they're looking pretty good. If you look at the labour market, we've seen unemployment coming down, but also underemployment uh, starting to improve. So we're seeing that spare capacity in the economy uh, being absorbed. Uh, I think what everyone's waiting to see is when wages growth might pick up to give households a little bit more um, income and spending money. Uh, so I think now that that's an issue that people are sort of um, hoping we'll see a little bit more uh, on the income side and some stronger consumption growth. Um, but, you know, I think things are, are looking uh, relatively positive uh, and there's always the chance for uh, some external events to provide us with a little bit of a shock. That was a bit of what's happened over the last year or so. Uh, so I, I guess, you know, they're the sort of main risks. Do you have any concerns about the level of debt in Australia? Uh, Well, I think that relates to uh, where we think household incomes are going. And, you know, one of the interesting charts in our EPO that uh, Michael Blythe put together was that relationship between uh, household debt and uh, wages. And and I think that is an issue for people to be mindful of, um, the extent to which uh, households can continue to service uh, the level of debt that they have. Uh, And from my perspective, I suspect that means the Reserve Bank's um, going to go softly, softly. The uh, title of your report says Economic and Political Outlook. Um, uh, What's your view about the political outlook now? Uh, Politics is always interesting, isn't it? Um, Look, I think uh, the main message that that came out from the, uh, the chapter on the political outlook in Australia was that this is a year where... Uh, political observers are probably not uh, expecting huge announcements on the policy front. Um, And I think that's disappointing. And I think uh, the sense in the community is that they would like to see more progress out of Canberra. There's some really important issues on their minds. Uh, When we did the big issues survey last year at CEDA, 
you know, people are concerned about energy prices, they're concerned about energy reliability, uh, and people are concerned about uh, some of the, the important services that they consume, like, like health services and, and what the future for that sector is and how uh, affordable healthcare is going to continue to be available to them. So, yeah, there's a lot there's a lot of issues on people's minds. I think that's what they would like Canberra to be focusing on. In fact, Canberra seems to be too busy bailing the water out of the boat caused by various <laughs> uh, political issues such as the citizenship saga and now Barnaby Joyce. And, I mean, all of those issues were, were picked up really clearly in the political chapter of our economic and political overview. Uh, and, and I, you know, that's the message that I, that I hear from people and that's what we saw from the big issue survey is that there are important issues on their mind, issues that uh, they think uh, politicians should be turning their minds to. Uh, and uh, hopefully they will this year, but the sense was um, maybe don't get your hopes up too high. What, what about the fiscal outlook? I mean, um, we've got this tension, as it were, between the need to um, get the budget back or the desire to get the budget back in a surplus and also to cut taxes at the same time. Where, where, do, you, where do you fall on that? Look, on the, on the taxes side, I think, um, it's, you know, obviously we need to be uh, reflecting what's happening in the rest of the world and thinking about what that means for our own competitiveness and the, the ability of businesses in Australia to continue to attract uh, foreign investment. Uh, uh, so it's, that's an important issue. From my own um, perspective, I think it would be nice to see um, some consistent you know, uh, approaches to that and a comprehensive approach to taxation policy more broadly. And on the spending side... You know, I think the focus has got to be on how we can do do things better. Um, I think there's a lot of scope to deliver programs and policies better than we've seen to date, uh, and that the, that's where we should be expecting more transparency and more action. I'm joined now by Daniel Hines, who covers commodities for ANZ Research. So, Daniel, there's a big sell-off earlier in the week um, among uh, across the commodity complex, um, but uh, seems to have been over now. What's your reflection on what happened and how it looks now? Yeah, look, I think um, with with the um, interconnectivity amongst um, um, asset classes now, we uh, we saw that risk-off tone really hit uh, commodity markets. Uh, but you know, the sell-off uh, to us looked. A little unwarranted, considering the the fundamentals, uh, you know, haven't really changed uh, that drastically, and and certainly the the pickup we've subsequently seen over the past day or so seems to indicate that, um, you know, while some uh, some as, uh, some investors, um, you know, weren't uh, particularly um, uh, looking to hold uh, um, risky assets like commodities during this sell-off period, there are plenty out there that uh, see. Um, you know, see a, a positive outlook for commodities, and uh, have clearly bought into that story uh, with with prices falling, you know, five percent. It's interesting because um, just focusing on gold for a minute. Um, uh, normally, gold goes up when uh, when inflation uh, seems likely to return or is returning, and um, that's what's driving the uh, volatility in share markets and uh, bond markets at the moment. Yet, gold really is not. Uh, it doesn't seem to be uh, rising or you know responding to that. Yeah, no, it did surprise us a little bit as well. I think um, you know the whole um, the whole trigger for that event um, you know should have been uh, quite supportive. But I I suspect there was um, you know a fair bit of um, ETF selling uh, in particular around uh, around gold, which probably weighed on on that price. But 
Interestingly, you know, the uh, the much better than expected um, inflation number in the US uh, overnight did um, did provide some support for for gold prices. We've seen it uh, push back above thirteen fifty, and you know, inflation expectations are um, are certainly uh, going to to rise on the back of that. So, while the initial sell off was uh, surprising in gold, I think. Um, you know, the, the sort of medium-term um, uh, drivers uh, are still there and should uh, should be quite supportive. Yeah, in fact, in January, you said that you thought gold would uh, push towards $1,400 an ounce US by the end of the year. Do you still hold to that? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, the, the environment, uh, particularly around, um, uh, you know, the political uh, environment, uh, obviously the, the inflation um, story we talked about, um, and um, all that, um, you know, really continuing to port, uh, support safe haven uh, buying, combined with um, what we see, uh, you know, some green shoots of recovery in the in the physical markets as well. So, while we're not calling for a, you know, all out bull uh, marketing gold, uh, certainly, um, you know, those um, those issues should be um, should be supportive of prices. For a while now, just on oil, for a while now, the oil market seems to have been a, a tug of war between OPEC and the US shale producers. I just wonder if we're getting into a, uh, a period when structural issues, such as an expectation of a transition to electric vehicles, is now going to uh, affect the oil market or not. Yeah, no, it certainly um, cloudies uh, the picture. I think... Um um, you know, longer term, uh, longer term uh, investors are certainly um, are worried about uh, that, and um, that's um, contrast, I suppose, with um, you know the, the positive demand growth that we're seeing come through. So there's there's definitely some diverging um, uh, themes out there, which uh, I suppose are going to just make the, the volatility in oil markets uh, even greater. Um, so that's certainly uh, something to watch out for, but. I think in the in the shorter term, at least you know, over the next twelve months, um, as as you uh, as you talked about, um, you know, it's going to be a battle between uh, between OPEC and uh, the US shale industry, and and I do uh, sense that OPEC, in particular Saudi Arabia, are still very determined um, to keep uh, constraints on output, which I think will will override um, you know the impact of, of rising US output. So you're a short term bull on the uh, on the oil price, are you? Well, actually, we went uh, tactically short um, in uh, in January, um, in light of uh, you know the very extreme level of uh, investor positioning, and also you know we're heading into the um, uh, into the refinery maintenance season. So this sell-off has, has uh, was expected, but I think um, you know over the next six to twelve months, so we're talking more sort of the back end of 2018, uh, we do feel that um, you know the market will continue to tighten, inventories will be. Uh, drawn down even further, uh, which is you know a uh, an environment which is very conducive to um, short term spikes. So um, you know I, I think um, you know, prices in the uh, in the order of seventy dollars a barrel for Brent are, are certainly quite achievable. You made an interesting point um, in a note last November about how or about the impact of China's uh, anti pollution push. Uh, the, the, what that's going to do to commodities, and in particular iron ore, and we've seen a bit of that in recent months uh, with uh, with their restrictions on the steel uh, producers. How do you see that playing out, Bro- more broadly, but also specifically on iron ore? Yeah, it's got wide-ranging uh, ramifications, but certainly uh, on the iron ore market, we're seeing quite a um, divergence now between uh, between the uh, the overall market. Um, 
one where you know high grade iron ore um, is is keenly sought after and uh, lower grade uh, material is is really being uh, pushed away and and stockpiled and that's um, I suppose a function of um, steel mills really trying to um, utilize um, you know the the lower capacity that they have in the market um, to meet um, you know that's still growing uh, demand uh, in that country so um, in a sense you know the large inventories that we're seeing um, in in ports at uh, China um, are largely um, marooned uh, and unavailable really um, to the market um, and as a consequence we don't think they'll have a big uh, big part to play in uh, in pricing but uh, you know overall it should suggest um, quite strong growth uh, or demand I suppose for uh, for imported high grade imported or um, you know for the foreseeable future right so that you think will support the price the iron ore price what above 60 what about 70 dollars a ton or or, uh, or more like 60. I think uh, we could we could potentially see it hold um, above seventy um, for the first half of this year, um, and we do uh, eventually expect to see some uh, weakness. But our um, our end of year target is around sixty five dollars a ton, so certainly um, um, you know much better I think than um, a lot of the uh, a lot of other uh, commentators are expecting, where there's there's plenty of uh, plenty of forecasts around the the fifty dollar a ton mark. Happy birthday, Peter Gabriel, who celebrated his 68th birthday a couple of days ago. Now, uh, Peter is one of those people who has a, one song on, that I guess they are sick to death of singing. And Peter Gabriel's is Salisbury Hill. Here it is. Climbing up on Salisbury Hill I could see the city light That's it for Talking Finance. You can share your thoughts by emailing us at hello at theconstantinvestor.com. I'm Alan Kohler. Have a great week. 